I'm back with my friend Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for joining me. Nice to be with you, Sam. It seems like it in Earth time, it hasn't been that long since we've spoken, but in pandemic time, it has been, I don't know, a year, a year and a half. How, how are you? Time is, time is moving funny. I, I am good. Since we spoke last, absolutely nothing has happened to me. I, <laughs> I stayed in my apartment. I go for walks and for runs, and I sit in front of my computer and watch. Now, absolutely nothing interesting has happened to me. What about you? Yeah, I've been surprisingly locked down. I mean, actually more locked down than I even sometimes intend. I notice that there are days where I can actually just sort of forget to go outside, which doesn't seem entirely healthy. So I, I'm, Yeah. Yeah, I, I've learned from this that I really would not like prison. I, yeah. I kind of knew I wouldn't like prison. I, it was kind of overdetermined, but but yet another reason is I, I got to go outside a bit. I got to go yeah. outside. I like walks. I like sitting outside. I like hanging out with friends. And it's just, it's really, it really taught me that, that I got to avoid finding myself in prison later in life. Okay, well, let's talk about this situation and what, what of interest we can glean from it. There's a bunch of questions I've gotten from Twitter, and um, we won't be entirely on uh, COVID as a topic, but let's just get all the COVID stuff out of the way first, because I want people to, everyone to have access to it, and um, hopefully some of it will be useful. But there's this one idea that has been circulating as people struggle to figure out how and when we can reopen society. And it's this difficult equivalence between economic cost and lives lost, or the risk of lives lost. And people seem anchored to what appear to me to be patently false claims and, and false comparisons here. And so you have someone like Andrew Cuomo, who's been a superstar through this, but even he will say patently absurd things like, you can't put a price on human life. Right, like as though we are thinking about when to reopen society or whether or not to close it and fully lock down as we have, it's obscene and impossible to even attempt to put a price on human life, which is which is just obviously not true. I mean, we, we put a price on human life all the time. We know companies and governments do that explicitly sometimes, but even when it's not explicit, it's absolutely there. And it's there whenever we decline to spend all the money in the world on the project of pushing the risk of dying as low as it can go. We could make every car cost a million dollars by engineering maximum safety into them. We could treat every plane flight like it was a rocket launch, right? We could check and recheck everything prior to takeoff. And the reason why we don't do this is that we've put a price on human life. The fact that it's implicit really doesn't matter. It's still there. We've weighed some implicit price against the time and the money required to guarantee everyone won't die in a circumstance. And this opens on to kind of an interesting ethical question because there's an obvious price disparity when you look at a country like the United States and the developing world. A human life is obviously and even necessarily worth less in the developing world because there's much less wealth. And the trade-offs in the use of wealth translate into different kinds of lives lost. I mean, when you think about what we would spend to resurrect someone from the dead, if we could, let's say we had the power of resurrection, but it cost a billion dollars 
to resurrect somebody. Well, we would do that in the United States at least once to prove that we could do it and see if it works. And there'd be a few billionaires who would probably resurrect their mothers or somebody. But even in the U.S., there's no way we would spend a billion dollars per life. We wouldn't spend $300 billion to bring back 300 people and then 301 and then 302. There's no way that would, that would happen, even in the richest country on earth. But when you look at the developing world, if it cost a billion dollars to resurrect someone in Kenya, well, there's no way you would spend that even once because you can spend $5,000 on bed nets and save a life. So you have, I mean, it's literally a, something like a two million fold difference in the wise allocation of resources there. So I just wanted to kind of open with that reflection that we're putting a price on life all the time. And this is a, just a very uncomfortable fact when you spell it out, especially in a global context where it's just obvious that we, we can't help but put less of a price on lives in the developing world, where this pandemic is going to land and you know, is certainly landing now with very likely much greater consequence in you know, well over 100 countries. So it's certainly true. Um, we often have to deal with this trade-off, particularly in this case. Now, to some extent, right now in America and Canada and other countries, there really isn't such a trade-off in that what a lot of economists would say is that, that the goal of helping out the economy and the goal of saving lives, they actually lead to the same action at this point. So pretty right. much every, every economist is saying, look, the lockdown is actually an end. If all you care is about is business and money, the lockdown's still good for that. And so you have a convergence of people on the right and the left agreeing that some degree of lockdown, there's going to be disagreements at the margins, is right. Later on, there's going to be trade-offs of exactly what you're saying. I don't think anybody would say we should keep locked up in our houses until the virus is entirely gone, until we have a vaccine that puts everybody out of risk. No, they're going to say, we're going to open things up a bit. And if they're honest, they'll say, yeah, a few more people will die, but the trade-off is worth it. And, and I agree with you. And one way to think about it is, it's a mistake to think of this inherently as money versus, versus lives. What it ultimately is, is human flourishing versus human flourishing. In mm -hmm. that, you know, the people who want the lockdown to be alleviated are not just saying because it leads to more money. It's because they want, you know, they want people to get their jobs back. They want businesses to flourish. They want people to be able to get married and attend funerals and be present when, uh, when their loved one is having birth and have, electable, and have elected medical procedures and all of that. There's no easy answer, but you're trading off different things. But they're not different kinds of things. They all revolve right. around what you've been most interested in, human happiness and human flourishing. So you bring up what has struck me as a second fallacy here, which you know, I'm hearing many people resist the lockdown even now, suggesting that this cure is worse than the disease, you know, that the economic costs are too high and these costs will translate, if not immediately into lives lost, there will be, you know, livelihood lost and sanity lost and the cost to human well-being is just too excruciating and will be in very short order such that we should just roll the dice and open everything up and realize everyone's going to get this virus anyway. And the reason why this seems to be a fallacy to me is these people are, are not properly comparing two states of the world. They're comparing the economic costs of lockdown to the way the world used to be right before lockdown. They're not comparing the costs of lockdown to 
even just the economic costs of doing nothing or doing much less than we are now in terms of social distancing and letting the contagion explode, right? So you just have to imagine what what does the economy look like when literally everyone you know has a story about a friend who went to a restaurant or to the mall or to a movie theater and wound up on a fucking ventilator. Where is your economy then when we've basically just ridden the exponential curve as far as we can with contagion? People aren't making that comparison. They're comparing the obviously scary and depressing effects. I'm sure they're they're only going to increase now in the coming months of lockdown to the way they remember the world of yesteryear. But that world, there's no scenario under which that world exists before we get to a place where we've got a vaccine or a truly effective treatment for COVID-19, where the risk of getting this thing by living normally is absolutely tolerable and economic behavior can return to normal. Yeah, I, I agree. I think some people have a fantasy where you say, well, look, let's make a hard choice here. And we snap our fingers. We snap our fingers and life goes on exactly as, as it had. We go to, to sporting events and restaurants and everybody keeps their jobs. And then just magically some fairly small percentage, 1%, half of 1%, whatever, of humans disappear due to the virus. Mm. And they say, well, that's the cost we paid. But that's, that's bizarre. It wouldn't happen that way. Every right. projection done by a serious person, for instance, points out that the fact is as people got sick, they would flood the hospitals. And that would cause enormous collateral damage. And, yeah. you know, and, and so besides being incredibly cold-blooded, because often this comes in with saying, well, just the old people will get it, which, you know, isn't, isn't true. And to the extent it's, it, it is true that they're proportionally more likely to get it. Well, some of us all love old people. Some of us are old people. Beyond being cruel, it's just irrational. It doesn't take into account that the economic damage cannot be disentangled from all the lives lost. What do you do with the, the moral non-equivalence between this kind of real-world decision and a thought experiment we could easily cook up that could leverage the empathy module in a way that would be, at minimum, misleading? So, like, obviously, people are willing to accept some number of deaths here for life to go back to normal. And given the way we're anchored to certain figures, I mean, given that people have accepted that in the worst year, the normal flu can kill 80,000 people in the U.S., right? Like, well, it was sort of 80,000 people died in, I think it was 2017 or 2018 by the flu. That's the worst influenza year in recent memory. And more or less nobody noticed unless they happened to have had a loved one killed by the flu. And so we're sort of anchored to a figure like that. And if COVID-19 only kills 80,000 of us, many people will be saying we, we overreacted and it was no big deal. It's just another flu. You know, the flu came twice this year. But when you picture a killing 80,000 people in any other way, I mean, what if, what if we were given a, a choice that we could just perform a human sacrifice of, yeah. you know, 18 people in order to rid the world of this pandemic? We would clearly balk at that. The identifiable human life sacrificed is intolerable, and yet the statistical life, I mean, this sort of brings us back to the, I guess it's the, the Lenin quote, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. How do you think about 
our failure to reconcile the moral arithmetic there. There is a framing issue, which is how you put it. I heard Rudy Giuliani say something to the effect of, you know, well, that many thousands of deaths isn't that much. It's equal to the flu. And imagine after 9-11 and, you know, the planes, you know, crash into Twin Towers and you say to Rudy Giuliani, you know, only about 2,800 people died. That's infant. That's, that's, that's a rounding error when it comes to the flu. Nobody should get upset at all. You would be looked at rightfully as a monster. And so, so the framing serves a rhetorical purpose. You, you, you connect the deaths due to COVID due to some large number of things that we accept and not, not something else in order to calm people down and get them to think this is a minor matter. But if it was any other thing, we would not think of it as minor. And then, of course, this is something which, which utterly enrages me, and I've seen this more than once, including by William Bennett on Fox News, where he says, well, 60,000 Americans, we were told it was going to be much more. We did all this, and for 60,000, for, you know, 60,000 deaths, that's not such a, a terrible thing. Ignoring the fact that it's a number as low as 60,000, if that's what it's going to converge on, precisely because we spent a damn month in quarantine. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm saying, I'm some guy saying, you know, we really need fire extinguishers for the fire. The fire comes. I use the fire extinguishers. There's not much damage. He says, you idiot. You thought we needed fire extinguishers. Look, there's not much damage. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I referred to on Twitter is the first paradox of quarantine. If social distancing works exactly as intended by lessening the contagion, the people who were against social distancing will feel vindicated that we overreacted. So it it is a it's a paradox or a seeming paradox but it's you can knock your brain against it and figure it out and the counterfactual is pretty clear and and it's being advertised to us and will be continually advertised to us in other countries that have not that's right or cannot affect an actual lockdown we'll see what exponential spread looks like and what its consequences are in some places I'm sure that's right. And you raised before something which really is a genuine moral problem, which is a problem of how to, um, how to compare things that aren't naturally comparable. So it's terrible for people to lose their jobs. It is painful. It could be humiliating. It could lead to, you know, in this country, another country, you know, starvation, loss of medical treatment, and so on. It is terrible. How many jobs lost equals one life or one death, actually? And that's a strange question, you know, yeah. it, but, but it's a strange question, but it's one that people actually have to wrestle with. I mean, if, if you knew that you could, you know, save the jobs of 10,000 people, but five people had to die, and this isn't science fiction, this actually could be just a policy analysis, we'll open up these restaurants and these bars and these stores, and, you know, you look at the numbers, five people will probably die because of it. It's not monstrous to say, go ahead. It would be monstrous right. to say there, that there's no amount of death that's worth people getting their jobs back, businesses flourishing, and so on. That's, that's crazy. That, that sanctifies human life in such a way that, that, that it treats it separately from human happiness and human flourishing. And I think, to some extent, we have to make these comparisons, but they're very difficult to do. But they may be impossible to do when made explicit, right? I mean, just like... The example that's always come to mind in this context for me is the speed limit. None of us have committed ourselves, you know, or very few people, I'm sure there's someone out there, but very few of us have committed ourselves to 
getting the government to pass speeding laws so as to bring the risk of death down on our highways as low as possible, right? So the, yeah. the lowest possible speed limit that's still compatible with the functioning of society so as to minimize death. None of us is wanting that, and yet are, are not wanting that is just paid for in blood every day, right? So the reasons yeah. why we don't want that, because we just, we like the freedom to drive more or less as fast as we want, or, you know, it'd be, it would just be too boring to spend that much time in a car because it takes three times as long to get anywhere. These are incredibly callous when held up against even a single death in a given year, right? And we know we reliably have something like 40,000 of them every year. So like when it's spelled out, if you had to opt in rather than find yourself in this system by default, but if, like if every time you got in your car, you had to you know, sign a waiver saying, yes, I'm, I consent to put the lives of my neighbors at intolerable risk or at needless risk by driving this fast. If made explicit, it would be somehow unsustainable. And this, this just happens everywhere. I'm not quite sure I know how to think about it beyond just flagging the problem. But if you just had to honestly assess real risk and your choice to embrace it, you know, you, you can't help but look like a psychopath. That's right. There, you know, um, Phil Tetlock calls them taboo trade-offs. And, and the paradox we're in is we have to do this all the time. We have to have some sort of speed limit. And any speed limit we have, if it were lower, it would save lives. If you had a speed limit 10 miles per hour, 40,000 people won't die on the yeah. roads. It had just, it, well, what would happen is you'd have millions of very pissed off people. And in our heads, we don't, talk about it, we don't make this policy, we say, well, to, to that much inconvenience, that much waiting and sitting in your car and getting bored out of your skull and not getting there on time, yeah, it's worth many, many people dying so we don't have to go through that. And it's, it sounds psychopathic to say this, but if you don't say it, you're stuck with absurdities where you demand a two mile per hour speed limit. Or you're stuck with absurdities where you say, we will not open up business and restaurants and bars and so on until the coronavirus is entirely gone, entirely eradicated, which would be a ridiculous decision. Yeah, although it'll be a decision that you can't make for everyone, right? So we could decide to open restaurants tomorrow by fiat, but no one would go, you know, or few sane people would go under the current conditions. That's right. We know there's no adequate testing. We know there's no contact tracing. We know we're just bailing water as fast as we can, and the boat is still filling up, right? So if you flip the switch and turn the economy back on, there would still be whole sectors of it where it would be dark. And the only thing that's going to change that is the mass and hopefully veridical perception that the risk has been diminished to a tolerable level. That's right. But diminished to a tolerable level. Yeah. Not, not eradicated. Yeah. I, the easiest, we'll talk later about some predictions we want to make, but the easiest prediction in the world is we will end the lockdown before we end coronavirus. We will, it'll be a presence and we'll, we'll worry about it and we'll try to block it. We'll test people. We'll look for people who are immune to it. We'll do all sorts of sensible things. But if we're honest with ourselves, we will all take some risk. Yeah. Now, so, so what do you think in terms of the, the complexion of life changing? <laughs> what do you anticipate in terms of? new norms around 
greeting people, you know, it just, yeah. it, it, where yeah, does the handshake go for, let's start with yeah. handshake. So, so, so let's, so let's look at a few things. Where would a handshake go? You know, I could imagine, first thing, the handshake's going to stay. There's mm-hmm. enough people who shake hands, but I could imagine among certain elite groups, people who travel a lot, people who worry a lot, people who are wealthy, maybe Hollywood, which tends to come first, the handshake may drop. It could be replaced by the fist bump, the bow, other options. I don't think it's going to entirely go away, but it wouldn't surprise me if five years from now, there are some people who had, did handshaking, don't do it anymore. I could see it actually bifurcating along the typical political lines uh, in the United States, where the Dems, many Democrats give it up and Republicans doggedly hold on to it. And the fact that each one of them, each group is doing it, makes the other one more extreme. Mm. Where, you know, you and I shaking hands, we saw each other, we like wearing MAGA hats. And, right. uh, you know, well, 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 you know, some, some Trump supporters bowing to each other, that's just getting a fist fight for trying to do that shit. So real, and, real Americans shake hands and, and yeah. the, uh, the latte sipping coastal elites namaste <laughs> each other. They, they, they do that exactly. Namaste. <laughs> what, what could be more of a cosmopolitan tree hugging <laughs> bullshit than namaste? What could be more of feet? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, physical contact's a human appetite. I think we're learning this. So I, I might be too quick to, 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 be, to, to say that the handshake will go away in among any group because people, people like touching each other. Not yeah. everybody. You, you know, your mileage may vary, but people like the contact, the hug, the kiss on both cheeks, the handshake. It's a natural human expression of solidarity and friendship and love. And shutting it down would be hard. But I don't think things are going to go exactly the same. And I can imagine some groups moving to other options, particularly, particularly if a threat of infection lives on for next year or more than a year. Yeah, well, I, I got to think that once we have a, a vaccine, you know, assuming we get a vaccine that, that works like a normal vaccine, that offers a hard reset where we yeah. just go back to who we used to be, hopefully with a few durable changes just in terms of are being poised to respond better next time. I think one thing we might get out of this, there's a phrase that the philosopher Nick Bostrom uses in talking about how we could respond to various existential risks. And I guess he, he would apply to the risk of pandemic as well, but we were, we were talking about it in a different context. But he has this phrase that, you know, one path of mitigating risk is developing something which he calls turnkey totalitarianism, where you can just, uh-huh. you just know how on a moment's notice to turn society into, you know, the maximally defensible project. And that entails, you know, you know, mass surveillance and, you know, in this case, you know, impeccable social distancing and the abrogation of all the rights that we have come to expect. And it's the temporary abrogation of these rights, but it's, you know, we've all signed up to survive for this period of a fortnight or a month or six months or whatever it is where we, we're going to go into lockdown. I got to think this has been a, a dress rehearsal for something that could be quite a bit more deadly. And we can learn something from this and become truly adept at pivoting to the everyone get into your spaceship and seal the airlock scenario. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of the stickiness of this sort of response is interesting. It, to some extent, we've seen that with 9-11, where 
where you know mm-hmm. our security theater at airports is right now indistinguishable from that like three months after 9-11 in many yeah. regards I mean, we we just stuck we just stuck with it we've shaken the etch-a-sketch pretty hard with, with respect to travel so well, who knows yeah, what's going to yes. come back i mean that's, 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 that's actually to... interesting you can imagine this kind of a, a a restart where maybe you know maybe tsa is going to let me carry my liquids right. on the plane because what the hell like we've gone through a lot yeah and i don't know how much it is for habits and this is you know, my prediction about, about handshaking and the like, you know, if, if, if two months from now, we're kind of back in, to normal, I doubt it. But if that were the case, we'd probably go back to our normal habits. But if we go a long period of time, then I think our habits might change. You know, you had somebody on your, on your podcast, doctor. I'm trying to think of positive implications of this event. If it were to turn out that, as you're saying now, that what we've learned from COVID will prepare us for the big one, the one with 60% of people die and spreads like wildfire and is species threatening. Then, you know, as horrible as this, as is to say, this was a godsend. This was ultra good. Yeah. No, there is a, it's amazing that once you take consequentialism seriously, you're, you're left, whatever judgment you have about the, the negativity of a, a given experience or a given outcome, it always has to be bracketed by your uncertainty around how things will look once you get further out in time, right? So this is it's like, when do you actually do the math on whether something was bad? You know, you know Chernobyl, is, yeah. it, is it too early to say that Chernobyl was definitively a bad thing for the world? Well, if, if something about Chernobyl leads us to become truly safe around the next generation of you know nuclear reactors, which save us from the greater evil of climate change, well then Chernobyl was again another thing that that actually we used to our advantage and and was a yeah. net good. Or worse, if Chernobyl scared us away from nuclear power, mm. thereby thereby hastening climate change because we right. lost a really important form of energy, it might have been you know a thousand times worse than it looked. Right, and, and for reasons that no one yeah. is even thinking about. Yeah, yeah. There's, 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 there's a Taoist power parable to this, which I won't repeat because it takes too long, but basically it's about this farmer and oh, yeah. something bad happens to him, and he says, yeah, but you know, and, he, and everybody says, oh, it's too bad. He says, yeah, we'll see. And yeah, then it turns yeah. out the bad thing turns out good thing. And I think it, it, this is the way the world works. That's why it's so hard to be utilitarian. I, I have um, a fun variant of um, a more R-rated variant of your question. I've heard two people, two very smart people, argue about this and come to different conclusions. Pretty soon, this is going to release and people are going to be dating. And, you know, dating or, or whatever euphemism you'll use, Tinder will, will reactivate, people will be hooking up. Do you imagine a pent release of pent-up sexuality? I've never said that phrase before. That, that will immediately throw everybody into the arms of strangers and this explosion of promiscuous sex? Or do you imagine a period of reticence? Where for a little while, people kind of holding back a little bit more, more cautious. Yeah, I guess this could be very different in, in different age cohorts. I, mean, I, I think the, you know, people under 30 probably even now consider themselves more or less immune to this thing, or the, the consequences of getting it will be trivial or extremely likely to be trivial. And, and that, that's true. And that, that still seems to be sort of true, although you can find examples of, of people in their 20s, dying or being 
brought pretty close to death from this. So it's not something that really anyone at any age should be eager to get. But I think the perception could be very different there. That's a good answer. You know, as you get older, I mean, as, as you're, you know, you get into your 30s and 40s, I have to think it's going to seem more like the AIDS crisis for people. I mean, I, I think you, you're going to want some testing prior to hooking up. Otherwise, huh. you know, it just, it's going to seem like Russian roulette. The world after a vaccine and the world after, you know, in, in nearer terms, probably the world after a truly effective antiviral treatment for COVID, I think those are very different worlds than the one we're in or the one we'll be in when we stumble out of our isolation with a regime of very arduous testing and tracing, keeping us safer yeah. than we would otherwise be. Though th this may happen sooner than a vaccine where they could test you. You could turn out to have the antibodies suggesting that yeah. you, you've had COVID and you'll be immune. And then I, I think they were doing this in China or something. On, their, on your smartphone, you can get a little, uh, you know, a little red flower or something, something glowing, a little orange flashing light that you could happily hold up to people saying, I'm clean. That person nope. will be Axel Rose in, in wherever, <laughs> that, wherever he is, in China or is that, elsewhere. Is that, is that really the, 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 the sort of avatar of yeah, like, uh, unfettered well, sexuality? Well, pro probably Axel Rose 20 years ago, 30 years ago, yeah. when I'm, I'm uh -huh. dating myself and Axel Rose. <laughs> He's there listening somewhere yeah. saying, whoa. Okay, uh, your listeners will never forgive us if we don't mention Trump. Is this mm -hmm. going to help Trump or hurt Trump come, come election time? Well, there are so many things that are conspiring to help and hurt Trump that it's, it's hard to analyze this in isolation, but it should have destroyed his presidency already. I mean, I just think the, the level of incompetence and dishonesty on display should be something that for those who, for whom he had a good reputation, his reputation should never recover from what happened in the month of March and what we've since learned about the month of February. Mm -hmm. But I mean, so it's just, you know, he, he missed every opportunity to avoid distinguishing our country as the country in which the contagion did the most damage. I mean, that's, that's where we are. We're, we're winning yeah. in, the, in a very Trumpian sense now, and we should be tired of it. But he is only going to get stronger as our response to this becomes more effective, right? So he's now getting credit for, or will get credit if, you know, there's only 60,000 lives lost. That's right. Or whatever the, the number will finally be. He'll get credit for anything short of an absolute holocaust, right? You know, if there's 2 million lives lost because we come rushing out of our houses and hit the exponential again in 50 states simultaneously and can't figure out how to get back in in time, and we've got nothing effective in terms of testing, and we tip over into something horrific, well, then that could make him unelectable. But I think anything short of this is the worst thing that's happened on American soil in a century and a half, I think he looks like the guy who, however ineptly, solved the problem. He delivered the aid. It's his name on the checks that are going out to people, however belatedly. Yeah. And part of this makes sense in that everyone wants him to succeed on some level. Everyone wants an effective remedy. Everyone wants to put politics behind them in an emergency. So the default is to give him mulligan after mulligan after mulligan just to try to get things in, in the right place. And he just, he just benefits from that in a way that, you know, that Biden 
can't, right? And so, and any criticism of him, as I've noticed, sounds to the ears of anyone who supports him like mere partisanship, you know, however yeah. however appropriately targeted it is to his genuine mistakes. So I, I do you, think he's, I'm very depressed by our political prospects. I mean, and this is couple that with the fact that Biden seems like he's in the twilight of some twilight and can barely complete a sentence without advertising the threat of old age, disease, and death to everyone listening. I just think it's it's a bad political season if you're hoping Trump is not going to be given four more years to rampage through human history. Yeah, you, you, I, I have a similar view. I've been watching his press conferences out of a kind of masochistic delight. And, you know, he, he's endlessly preening, declaring victory, boasting. And, and I, I try to see this from somebody who hasn't been otherwise following it. I think, wow, he's done really well. And because I think things are going to go well, I'm kind of an optimist. And I think that the governors and, and the people in charge and the CDC are doing pretty rational planning for the future. I think this is going to turn out not as bad as it could have. And we're going to come out in the fall and Trump is going to be declaring victory over and over again. And then people, presumably Biden, will point out, and they'll be exactly right, that he, he messed it up. He was far too slow. It was a disaster. But they're going to come off as, as nitpicking. As, yeah. as, you know, saying, you know, it's like, he'll say, I, I won the war. And you're complaining that very early on there were some missteps. Well, I won the war. Yeah. And, and so, so I worry about that. There's one question that came in from Twitter, which seems appropriately targeted to you. What do you think about the impact on children of this whole ordeal? I mean, you know, both the, I mean, I guess, you know, most relevantly, just the experience of normal life being disrupted. And what do you think about the impact on education? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk a bit about the first see if we get to the second. But uh, we have a mutual friend, and he, uh, he sent me some stuff that Freeman Dyson wrote about the Blitz. Mm. So in the Blitz, you know, this, this uh, what, a 60-day-long barrage of bombs over London by Germany. And the kids, of course, were sent off to the country. I think about half of them were sent off to the country. Education was gone. The kids in the country basically went feral and would just spend each day running around in the woods. Right. And, and, and Dyson talks about this with great nostalgia and points out, hey, we're fine. Hmm. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that kids are alarmingly, strikingly, wonderfully resilient. There's certain things that are really awful for a kid. I think the worst things turn around you know, cruelty by parents and stuff like that, indifference. But when it comes to this sort of thing, kids are great. Mm -hmm. And so I have every reason to believe that at the end of all of this, there will be no, you know, we won't have some sort of generation of the corona traumatized, the corona kids right. who, you know, have to be under special medication and so on. They'll be, they'll be fine. Does pulling the brakes at a fourth hour of continuous FaceTiming with one's friends count as cruelty? Because I'm sure there'll be some debate <laughs> in my house about that. Yeah, well... Well, everything people so confidently said about screen time has kind of gone yeah. out the window. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think when it comes to implication, maybe we'll learn that we worried a little bit too much about screen time mm. and other things. Yeah. Maybe worried a little bit too much about that extra hour of school and so on. So I'm really optimistic about the kids. When it comes to education in general, I'll sort of shift from, from kids to, to, to um, college kids and university kids. 
So every university, every college I know has gone online and Yale has gone online and I'm teaching online now. Hmm. And if you ask professors about this, what do you think of teaching online? I've asked, talked to friends and so on. We, we hate it. How, hate how it. are you actually doing it? What are the mechanics of it? So, um, so the mechanics are twofold. And this is, this is similar to what a lot of people are doing. For intro psych, which is what I teach, the lecture component of the class has been replaced by online lectures. I already had some up as part of a, a Coursera online system. Mm. So I just tell my students which ones to take. I refer them to, to some uh, YouTube videos and some other things I've done and ask the lectures. They watch the lectures online. But then we also have, have sections and we do that by Zoom in small groups. Right, right. And, you know, and so it, it's not the same. It's really not the same. The seminar's not the same. The lectures are not the same. And professors will complain about it, justifiably so. But I can't help but think there are some positive features of this. It's not that bad. For one thing, it's very egalitarian. It's egalitarian at the level that you see everybody's faces at once, exactly the same size. You're not sort of trapped by the structure of a seminar room or the distance of a lecture hall. But it's also egalitarian in that you can take a Yale course and you don't have to be in New Haven, Connecticut. Hmm. You could be anywhere. And, you know, there was a big push for these MOOCs, these massive online courses, many years ago. And I don't think that much came of it. I don't think, no, very few universities shifted to them and so on. But having tasted this, I wonder whether it's going to change the way universities work. I think maybe to the better, to some extent, where more stuff we made online and more stuff will be available to the 99% of humans who don't get to be, you know, close to a great university or college. But wasn't the issue with MOOCs, and again, I don't know this firsthand, but my sense was always that the lesson learned was that it's just harder to be motivated in solitude, interacting with screen-based content and being asked to do a lot of hard work to get through a yeah. course. There's something about physically showing up with other people, even if it's only a, the ritual of moving your body from one place to another, that makes it easier to just actually get the work done. Is that so? I I think that's a true. I think that's a correct observation. Mm-hmm. You know, my office is right next to a, a large lecture hall on Yale campus. And, you know, suppose Salman Rushdie was coming to give a talk. Mm. Oh, hell, I'd go see that. I'd wait in line for that. But if somebody told me, what are you doing? On YouTube, there's the same talk. Right. Well, who wants to see it on YouTube? Whatever. I can see anything on YouTube. Being in person matters a lot. But, but in defense of the MOOCs, the experiment has never been properly done because you're comparing kids who are at a university, say, or a college, and they have to take courses. They signed up for them. They get grades, they have scholarships rests on them. This is their career versus people who are taking MOOCs like they're picking up a paperback book they bought, which is, you know, maybe I look through it and then toss it aside if it's boring. Right. So the proper experiment would have a university course with the same requirements and grades and commitment and exams, but this time it's run long distance. It's a flip classroom. And I, and I agree with you that the in-person matters. And I think we're seeing this more generally. I've been talking to a lot of friends over Zoom and having occasional drinks, regular drinks with friends. It's not the same. Yeah. You know, you know I'm not kissing them, but in, when I'm in person, we're not touching, but it's not the same. So I don't think that there'll be a full replacement. I think something is lost. But I also think that this might really transform higher education, maybe in a good way. And, and I'm thinking about this more generally. So now if I want to see my doctor, I, I'll FaceTime with him. He sent out an email saying, you want to meet with me? Here's how to do it. We're doing uh, it through FaceTime. 
Here's the procedure. And it occurs to me for a lot of things, that's actually really efficient. You know, mm, some things yeah. he has, some things you got to touch, you got to touch the person and so on. But, some, but if, if I tell him, you know, look, I needed a, I'd like a, a renewal for this prescription, he knows he's going to talk to me. And that could be done online. Do you think there are many universities that might not survive a, a long hiatus here? I mean, if this drags on into next year, I mean, I know there are major ones have endowments that I would imagine make them bulletproof over a much longer time span. But is there talk about just the failure of colleges in the near term? There's always been smaller colleges that are on the brink and that rely on tuition money and they don't have million or billion dollar endowments. And we're going to lose a lot of those. We don't know what's going to happen in the fall. Enrollment's definitely going to go down for many of them. Whatever endowments these colleges have been, you know, damaged by the, by the financial downturn, I think places are going to go broke. And even, you know, and so, so nobody's going to cry for, for the Yales or the Princetons and everything, nor should they. But, you know, but we're, we have a, a hiring freeze. We have a salary freeze. And I know at Yale School of Management, the, the tenure faculty are actually devoting some of their salaries and shifting it to help out untenured faculty and staff who might lose their jobs. So, so even at the higher levels, the very, very rich places are hurting. This is really going to damage the, 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 le- the smaller and uh, less financially flexible places. So, so do you even, even at a place like Yale, untenured faculty are losing their jobs or, or at risk of losing their jobs? No, no? They, they, they wouldn't be at risk of losing their jobs. This is, in some way, the school of management works differently. And I think the money might actually go to staff who may get laid off. Mm. But the untenured faculty here are not going to lose their jobs. They are, um, we're not going to tenure fewer people or anything like that. That, that never happens. But I think a lot of people who work for Yale are at risk. I think the graduate program is going to be maybe taking fewer graduate students. Mm-hmm. This has had all sorts of ramifications. I mean, you know, look, I feel awkward saying this because, you know, I know people have lost their jobs. I know people who loved ones have gotten sick. So, but I have students who have research projects and their research careers have been set back by a year. Yeah, well, yeah, or if they're lucky, a year. It's just when you think about the right. the economic environment into which people graduating now or soon to graduate will be seeking to start their careers, and how long it takes for us to dig out from this. Strangely, to watch the stock market respond with with a rally as it did yesterday, I think it went down again today. But yeah. You'd think there's been good news that decides, you know, the winds of the economy have shifted. But I mean, we're just at the very beginning of understanding how bad this is and will be economically. Yeah. And it just seems like, you know, it could be years before people get back to zero. Certainly in some sectors, it's, I don't see how it could be anything other than years. Yeah, it could be, it could be devastating for people early in their careers for a lot of different careers. And, you know, more generally, I, you know, I've heard economists talk about it and nobody's quite clear on what projections to make. It's not like the Great Depression. You know, everybody, all these people lost their jobs, but in some way, the jobs will be waiting for them or waiting for somebody when, when lockdown ends. You know, you don't expect this, uh, this, this huge leap in unemployment to remain once this is over. Yeah, except when you picture all of the small or smallish businesses that have failed in the meantime. Yeah. You turn the lights back on, but 
some significant percentage of restaurants no longer exist, right? You know, there's just space now available for rent as a restaurant. Yeah. You know, the, to reboot that is difficult. You know, I don't know what the time course of that is, but. Yeah. And we talked before about, you know, how do you compare death to misery? And, and each of these stories of a person losing their job, a business doesn't get started up, is just misery. You could spend your whole life trying to create something and have it dashed. I, f I find myself struck by, by all of the small stories about, you know, women giving birth without their partner being present. Mm. Uh, somebody's loved one dying and they can't be in a room with them. Yeah. Well, without well, that one, that one's ubiquitous and that's really brutal. I don't know if anyone, I'm sure in, in, in the context of some other pandemic or epidemic, that's been a common experience, but that really is the, the experience now of people, anyone who's going into a hospital, whether they're going to be there for weeks recovering or they're going to die, it seems like it's the universal experience that they're waving goodbye to their loved ones and hoping to see them at the end of all this. I mean, this gets to the bigger question where a lot of my colleagues, a lot of people on social media have been talking about what are the long-term psychological effects of this? Will this cause a, you know, a sharp increase into depression and anxiety disorders? Will it be sort of this collective trauma that a lot of people suffer from? And I think the answer is yes, but not only yes. It gets complicated. There, there's... We also have psychological mechanisms that are protective against these things. I said kids are resilient, but adults could be resilient too. But one thing that strikes me, which is kind of, I'm trying to struggle my way home to think about this. There's a literature on how we deal with, with sort of collective disasters like Hurricane Katrina or the, the September 11 bombing or the Blitz. And the answer typically is, Rebecca Solnit has a great book called A Paradise Built in Hell, where she talks mm -hmm. about this, is it brings people together. It yeah. brings people together. They work together. It becomes rich and poor, black and white. Everybody works together. There's this, and there's a feeling of, of joy and bliss in a common purpose and a common goal. So, so you read about these cases and, and, and people talking back about what it was like to be in a bliss, what it was like in these circumstances saying, it was wondrous. You know, we, we lost our house, so-and-so died, but it was wondrous. It, it was a moment in my life I can't recapture. And you think, well, there's a bright side. People will look back on the pandemic this way. But the cruel thing about the pandemic is we can't get together. Yeah, We get together. We, yeah. We're getting together now over Skype. But you look at every other case and there are people physically together in large groups, helping out, working together. And, and the cruelty of this pandemic is it, it, it blocks us from, I think, a process that would leave us far more resilient to the suffering, that would make us better. Yeah, I mean, putting your shoulder to the wheel here is synonymous with social distancing. That is what you can do. It is the opposite of bringing people together. And Right, and, and if what I can do is, is, is help pull the rocks from people who, who have been crushed by it, Red earthquake and I work on a day and night is horrible, but it's also such a thing to do. But if what I could do is sit at home and, and bake bread and watch Netflix, it doesn't yeah. scratch the same itch. One thing that's interesting for me is the prospect of having one's perception of the risk of contagion and its consequences permanently reset. I really I don't know if this is going to happen. I, I do think that it's possible that once we have a vaccine, well, then the world 
essentially goes back to where it was. And you and I never really were worried about Ebola, and we're not going to worry about it now. Yeah. We're not going to worry about the next pandemic until it's sufficiently well advertised to us that we're convinced we need to get back in our houses and hunker down. So I could imagine a perfect reset there. But currently, if I'm looking at a, a video you know, shot in the distant past of six months ago, and, and you just see normal social behavior, yeah. right? You see a crowd of people shoulder to shoulder. You see a politician wading into that crowd and shaking hands. And, you know, I feel like I now have the agoraphobia module in my brain yeah. fully installed where I think that just looks fucking crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like what, yeah. what are those people thinking? Don't they know about aerosolized <laughs> contagion that is the, th the thing that is astonishing about this circumstance is that this was not a maybe. This is something like this was more or less guaranteed to happen, right? It's like we're open systems with respect to the rest of the world and its novel viruses. And once we solve this particular problem, we will be absolutely sure that the next one is coming. Now, whether it's coming in yeah. four years or 40 years, we don't know. But this is like the next tornado arriving in Tornado Alley. You can't pretend you don't know about tornadoes if you live in Kansas. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's two possibilities for what happens when you get hit by a tornado. One is, it's always the safest bet when somebody says, how will this transform us to answer? It won't. We'll just go back to normal. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think this is true for some aspects of this. I hear people say, this will give us increased respect for the value of science. Ah, no, it won't. No, it won't. You know, the people who care about science will care. And then others will forget about, about it. Even anti-vaxxers will come back, I bet, after a little while. You don't think we can quash <laughs> that one for good? Well, I was thinking of the, the, the one group at risk is probably anti-vaxxers. It's just, it is very hard to be an anti-vaxxer this day. But, but wait, but wait. I, I, I just think the, the most natural answer is, the safest answer is always, it won't change us. My predictions about handshakes are fantasies. You know, people shake hands because they always shake hands. Why should this make a difference? It's, right. it's, it's months, it's a year, it's not enough. But, but I have some sympathy for your kind of analysis too. Take it at an individual level. You go for a nice walk around a neighborhood. You know, every night you're all happy and everything. And then one day you take a walk in a neighborhood and a vicious dog bites you. And you're hospitalized, you come back. For the rest of your life, walking around a neighborhood is different. Yeah. It's different, it's fraught with anxiety. Maybe, you know, you, you, do, you do therapies, you work on it, but it's always there. And in fact, the next time the dog bites you, it comes back like wildfire. And I wonder whether this touch with disease and contagion, I guess I'm saying that, that there's some chance you're right, this touch with disease and contagion will forever reconfigure us. Where, you know, right now you're fine, and then, you know, a couple of years later, someone loudly sneezes at a party and everybody flinches. We find ourselves washing our hands more often. People with obsessive disorders get worse. That has to be an irony of, of anyone who's far along on that spectrum. I mean, just this you know, compulsive yeah. hand-washing behavior is the, the order of the day now. Yeah. It's like it's the introvert's revenge and also the obsessive washer's mm. revenge. I, I know a guy on, on, a friend of mine, and on Twitter he was saying, so this is another take on it, saying that he's normally a very anxious person. And I know him, and he, he self-medicates with, with marijuana and kind of, but he's basically an anxious guy. He says, this has been the least anxious period of his life because A, everything he worried about has happened, and B, 
everyone else is sharing his feelings, his experience too. The consolations of, of I told you so. That's exactly right. That's exactly the happiness of the paranoid person who finally sees the black helicopter circling his house and says, see? <laughs> see. And, and in fact, I mean, that's something which, which is just amazing. I don't, you know, I don't know if we talked about it last time or this time, but, but one of the things which is unique about this is how shared it is. Mm-hmm. How we, for the first time in my life, and maybe I will never experience this again, I'm experiencing something that everyone else in the world is in different ways, but pretty much the same. Yeah, although I keep having to remind myself that on the one hand, we're having a shared experience. Just take the United States, something like, I think it's 97% of us are under something like lockdown orders, but there are very different experiences to be having in that context. I mean, there are people like me who are extraordinarily fortunate to be, one, locked down in a condition of relative comfort with family who I'm experiencing the silver lining of, you know, lots of enforced quality time, which that we're all enjoying. You know, there are people who are, even in my, in similar circumstances, but they're not having a happy family life at all, right? You know, they're figuring out how they can get divorced the moment the um, quarantine lifts. But then they're, you know, just add all these other variables. There are people like me who can continue working, and there are people who, who have just seen their economic life completely implode because, you know, work is synonymous with not being locked down. And then there's just every other permutation of this in other contexts, like, you know, what's going to happen in the developing world where you can't even lock down, right? And yeah. there's so much crowding and kind of hand-to-mouth economic necessity where it's just, you know, you, you just have to try to keep living normally because there's not much of a health system that you're going to crash in the first place, right? So people are just going to get this virus and you can try to avoid it, but it's more or less hopeless. So it's just the range of experiences under this common condition is impressive. And um, we don't have shared fates here. And that's... No, that's yeah. that's true. I'm I'm in Toronto now, and there's a lot of controversy about people. People of wealth in Toronto typically have a summer cottage by the, by the lake. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's a bit, because the, the mayors of these cottage communities are saying, don't come. We don't want you to come. You, and, you, know, you risk getting sick. You risk infecting people. We don't have the resources and everything like that. And then, you know, but if you well, I pay taxes and I bought this place. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you know, I could walk down, you know, Queen Street where, where I'm at and I see clusters of homeless people. And, and they're not obeying social distancing because, because they're, they're homeless. They don't have anybody, you know, they're, they're protecting each other hmm. and they have no, you know. And so, but, but I'd still say, you know, I read something in the New York Times and the headline was something to the effect of half of the world under lockdown. And yeah. yes, we experience it very differently. But still, when have you had an experience? When have you thought about something and knew of some certainty that people in in Kenya and, and Tokyo and Saskatoon are thinking about the very same thing. I can name those occasions. They're, they're, they're impressively few, but I think the first moment like that, that seemed like it was a truly a global moment where everyone uh-huh. was paying attention to the same thing or nearly everyone. Strange to say it, that it was the first thing in my lifetime that seemed to rise to that level was Princess Diana dying. Oh yes. That was just an yes. order of magnitude bigger than anything else that had happened in terms of its, you know, media coverage. And then you had 9/11, and then you had Trump's election, 
and then you have a, you know, a fair amount of Trump, and then you have this. And I don't know what, I'm sure there's something else on that list, but they're pretty few and far between these events. But a lot of those things, I, I don't think they compare. No. I think that, that no. you know, when, when Trump was elected, there was probably a snapshot where the whole planet was going, oh, fuck, but, you know, just for a moment. But, but then two days later, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, a real estate agent in Beijing, you're probably not thinking about Trump, yeah. you know, and you weren't thinking about 9-11. People in New York thought about 9-11, but how much did people in Nebraska two months later think about 9-11? But now we're thinking about this all the time. Yeah. And, and so on the one hand, it's this enormous collective communal thing, but on the other hand, we experience it alone. And, 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 I, and I'm worried that the aloneness is going to block any positivity about, that you might get from the shared experience. Hmm. But, but you're totally right. People, people do, you know, and I don't want to diminish that. You're very fortunate. I'm fortunate as well to be, to be stuck with somebody I love. There's a lot of people, even people who aren't having terrible experiences are stuck with people they hate. And imagine being stuck in a place and imagine it's not a big place with somebody who hates you and you hate them. Yeah, or just completely isolated, right? I mean, the people yeah. who are isolated and are not well-designed for isolation. Okay, so let's go to a few more topics. We had a bunch of topics from Twitter related to the election, the prospect of Bernie supporters refusing to, to vote for Biden. We should touch that. So in my last podcast with Caitlin, I talked about my misgivings or you know, really everybody's misgivings about Biden, though I vowed to vote for him even if he were brought into the Oval Office on a gurney. I'd vote for the gurney. Yeah. I mean, I, I I mean yeah. There's virtually nothing we could learn about Biden or a degree to which he could unravel in his personhood between now and election day that would disqualify him by comparison with Trump. And I just think, you know, everyone's waiting to see who his VP pick is, but you know, whoever that person is and whoever else he would pick, these people will be so much better collectively than Trump and his personality cult that um I just think it, you know, it's not even a choice, but are you noticing the agitation among Bernie supporters as Bernie counsels them to support Biden and throws in his support as well? I mean, it's just, there's now a backlash against yeah, Bernie. There's, there's a lot of disappointment. The, this prominent socialist group disavowed you know, Biden, said they weren't going to support him. I, I have never met anybody who was enthusiastic about a President Biden. But I think a lot of people, including me, supported him because we believed that he'd be the person other people would most support. <laughs> and there may be a problem with that logic. Yeah. But, uh, but, but now we have him. If it was Elizabeth Warren, there'd be people who were tremendously enthusiastic. Certainly if it was Bernie, people would be, would be tremendously enthusiastic. Biden's a compromise candidate. Biden is, is, you know, is the guy Democrats have chosen because they hope Republicans will, will vote for because he's, he's normal and, and not frightening, and he's not Trump. So that, that's what we got. And, and I certainly, I mean, like you, I certainly hope, I, I hope everybody votes for him. They don't have to like it, but think of the alternative. It's hard for me to understand what's going on in, among Bernie supporters. If you're a Bernie supporter and you think that mitigating economic inequality and climate change are high priorities. I mean, just take those two issues. These are real problems that are not going to go away on their own. 
and you want us to move in a direction of solving those problems, which you know I fully yeah. agree you should. There are other problems. You know, you can add healthcare as well. I mean, there's just many, many things you can point to where the difference between Biden and Trump on the issues is so enormous. Again, it's not just him. It's the kinds of people he would hire to advise him on those problems and you know whether or not he would listen to that advice, right? If you can't see the difference there between Biden and Trump, politics has damaged your ability to think clearly about things you profess to truly care about. And there's a cultic element to this. I mean, there seems to be a kind of derangement around a purity test, right? Or an imagined purity test. It's important to point out that even Bernie is now failing this purity test, right? Yeah. Bernie is supporting Biden. And then you have, you have memes like, the lesser of two evils is still evil. And that, that this is a, a phrase that seems to do a lot of work among Bernie supporters. And it can sort of sound wise on its surface, right? But it, it's actually idiotic. It's just masochistic. You know, if you really care about the issues you profess to care about, these are two different worlds where Biden has more power than anyone versus Trump having more power than anyone. And it's honestly, it's, it's like a choice between Dumbledore and Voldemort. And therefore, it really shouldn't matter that Dumbledore may be senile. Whatever percentage of Dumbledore you get in this equation, you're going to be getting access to a completely different worldview, if only delivered by the other people who get empowered in his wake. I just can't believe that any significant percentage of people who truly were supporting Bernie and the causes that he was championing will, at the end of the day, either not vote or you know, vote in some, some way that is effectively a vote for Trump. Dave, David Sedaris in The New Yorker has a, a, a parable he tells to get across your point. And uh, it's very quick. He says he's on it. Imagine being on an airplane. The flight attendant comes down the aisle for food cart and puts it in front of you and then says, can I interest you in the chicken? She asks, or would you prefer a platter of shit with bits of broken glass in it? And he says to be undecided in this election is to pause for a moment and ask how the chicken is cooked. Right. And, you know, and so, so I agree. And, and, I, I have not heard many people, you might listen to a broader spectrum of people than I do, but I've not heard many people saying, I'm not going to vote, or I'm going to vote for Trump, or just, yeah, I'm going to sit this one out. I think what, what you do hear is a lot of disappointment with Biden and disappointment with how things have gone. And, you know, in some way, there's a difference between saying, I will choose the, the shit with the broken glass in it, which plainly irrational, versus saying, you know, I'm really pissed off at this airline that these are my options. That, right. that you know, that, that the chicken looks awful. And I'm going to have the chicken because I'm hungry. I got to choose. But I want to vent a lot over, over the kind of choices I've been given. And that, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, I completely share that. I mean, the fact that we wound up with Biden, who really is compromised, he's not a full candidate. He shouldn't be running for the presidency. And it goes without saying, he shouldn't actually be president, right? It's just, this guy is, is ready for retirement. But yeah, so the process that promoted him above all other possible contenders to be the only thing standing between us and four more years of Trump, that's a terrible process. I don't know how we yeah. fix it, but 
Yeah. Given where we are, you know, take the chicken. Yeah, take the chicken. But, you know, I, I, I share some of the frustration. There were, a lot, there were quite a few people who were up there that I was interested in, including like Cory Booker. But mm. Elizabeth Warren seems to dominate Joe Biden in every aspect. You know, you could disagree with some of her policies. Joe Biden's definitely more centrist mm. than her. But she's smart, hyper-competent, hyper-qualified, very able to argue not suffering from dementia is too strong, but not, not suffering yeah. from the signs of old age that Biden plainly is, and shows a pretty good chance of, of, of being able to kick Trump's ass. And, and that the system got to a point where she was sort of moved aside is very frustrating. I'll give you an optimistic take, which is that, you know, he's not that bad. It, he, you know, any politician has hours and hours, gives you hours and hours of footage makes verbal slips of the tongue, gets things confused. And we, we see Bidens are now put up on Twitter. And I could actually imagine the fact that Biden knows that his mistakes are amplified, can make him more likely to make a mistake. But yeah. I don't think he's, I, I think we, we're, it's, there's a natural tendency to overestimate the extent to which he screws up. And I think he could probably do well against the debate. A one-on-one -on -one debate is a different sort of animal than the sort of scrums he was in and did pretty perform pretty badly, actually. Mm. I, I, don't th I don't think it's... I, I, that's certainly what Trump will portray him as, senile, senile sleepy Joe or whatever. But we'll see. I, yeah. I'm more optimistic. And, and a good VP pick, obviously somebody younger, because there aren't many people older. Yeah. And uh, a, a woman, I, you know, I can imagine him go with Klobuchar as, a, as a, another centrist, mm. or, uh, or Harris as an appeal to the left. But... Uh, I'd be surprised if it's Harris. Yeah, but, given the, but, the the racial charge that she made against him. Yeah, uh, but you know. but either one of those would be interesting. And this is, by the way, so we're talking as if we're confident there will be an election in November. Yeah, that I, I don't know how that works, short of everyone voting by mail. I mean, that just seems like that'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. Okay, pivoting to a final and very different topic, but this also came in from Twitter. I lost the attribution here, but uh, someone asked, could you and Paul discuss in depth what you mean when you say there's no self? What exactly do you mean by self? Because to me, the existence of the self is the hard problem. They're referring to the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's for you, because I don't often say there's no self. Yeah. I'm, 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 uh, I'm waiting to be convinced. When you hear me say the self is an illusion, what effect does that have in your um, yeah. taxonomy of psychological things, what could I be referring to and what alarms go off? What concerns do you have? Is there any way that it makes sense or does it make no sense? Well, the, the way it makes most sense is that I, I take you as sort of talking in the same vein as my friend Bruce Hood, who wrote a book mm. also denying the existence of the self. And he says, look, there's no immaterial Cartesian soul that exists separate from the brain that is, that is eternal, that is, you know, you're you without any, unmoored by any physical structure, exempt from any causal law. And I told, if, if that's a self, then I think no such thing exists. I think right. that, that everything that is, anything psychological that is, is, exists in the brain, is subject to causal law, is, is the product of evolution, and so on and so forth. So, so if that's all you were saying, 
I would be totally on your side. But you're saying something a lot more, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. But that's not really what I'm referring to. Cause it, and, and, and I'm willing to be, yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm very moved by the sort of Cartesian thing. You know, I think, therefore, I am. My knowledge that I exist over time and across space is one thing I really do know for sure. And if you're denying that, right. oh, I need some convincing. Yeah, well, so, again, it depends on what you mean by you in that framing. So I would agree that, that consciousness, you know, the fact that there's something that is like to be whatever it is you are, and, and that's the hard problem of consciousness, is the fact mm -hmm. that that is very difficult to explain in terms of, you know, any account of unconscious complexity or impossible to explain or seemingly impossible to explain. There's no, there's no account of unconscious events that will intuitively make sense of the fact that there's something that it's like to be us in this moment. But the fact that it is like something in this moment, however mind is related to matter, that fact is undeniable. Mm -hmm. I would argue that's the one thing that you can't be wrong about, even if you're dreaming, even if you're a brain in a vat, even if you're confused about everything, you're in the matrix, nothing is as it seems. The one thing that is as it seems is the fact that things seem any way at all. And that's the fact of consciousness. But I wouldn't say the same thing about the self. In fact, I would say the opposite about the self. And by self, I mean not the person, right? I'm not saying that people are illusions. Okay. And I'm not talking about the self from outside the way Bruce Hood is in saying that, you know, there's no subset of a person that exists independent of the person, right? There's no soul, there's no ectoplasm, mm -hmm. there's no. There's no thing inside that's divorceable from the, you know, all the atoms in your body and the information pro that they're processing in any given moment. I would agree with that. I mean, certainly there's good reason to believe that's the case, but I'm not talking about it from the third person side. I'm talking about it from the first person side, from the, the experience of being what you are. The self that people think they experience, it's not identical with their body. Right, it's not okay. that um, they feel that they are their bodies merely. There's a, a sense of subjectivity interior to the body. There's a sense that there's something in the head. There's a locus of attention in the head, and then this speaks to a line which I think is you know originates with you. I think is forget in which of your books this appears, but the sense that we're all common sense dualists is born yeah. of the fact that. We feel like the mind is divorceable from the body. That, you know, we have our minds in our heads and we are in our bodies as a kind of passenger, right? The body is a kind of vehicle and there's a subject in the head. And it's that subject in the head that feels that it is in control of things, that feels that it has free will, right? And doesn't mm -hmm. want to hear otherwise. It feels like it's authoring its thoughts, right? It's not that thoughts merely arise as more phenomena in this universe. It's that I am thinking. There's a me in here. That is the self, this presumed center to consciousness that I would argue can be seen to be illusory. And there's a consequence to seeing it to be illusory, which is to say that you experience what consciousness is like without that feeling. Right? It no longer feels like there's a center to it. 
it no longer feels like there's an I who's doing the thinking of thoughts. Rather, it feels like thoughts simply appear in consciousness. And, you know, they appear the only way they could appear. They just appear on their own. There's nobody authoring them. You don't think them before you think them. You don't know what you're going to think next. Everything is just appearing, sensations, thoughts, even intentions. This is why the free will problem in philosophy, on my account, is a pseudo-problem, because the normal framing is we know we have free will, we experience it directly, but it's more or less impossible to make sense of in terms of the physics of things. Well, my argument is that we don't experience it directly or indirectly. We don't experience it at all. If you pay attention to how anything arises, even intentions that precede voluntary movements, they simply arise. The choice to move your left hand versus your right hand, the freest choice a person could possibly make, completely uncoerced by any outside pressure. You can sit there for as long as you want and talk to yourself about the merits of lifting one versus the other. The intention that finally arises as the proximate cause of of moving the left over the right or the right over the left comes out of nowhere. And it's in principle completely inscrutable to you, or should be. And you, as the witness of that process, intention arising and movement happening, you are in no position to inspect it, and you didn't create it. And if you keep dropping back into the position of merely just witnessing how things arise, thoughts, sensations, sounds, emotions, and even intentions, you notice that consciousness itself, the thing that is noticing everything, doesn't feel like I. Whatever feels like I, whatever sense is that there's a subject in the head, the feeling Mm -hmm. of being behind your face, all of that is also just an appearance, some contraction, it's some physiological signature in consciousness being read into the body that is, again, another appearance that you didn't create. And the practice of meditation is just to keep looking at this as closely as you can. And if you keep doing that, you can actually have the experience where that sense of self, that sense of of there being a subject in the head, drops away. And there's just consciousness in its contents. And you're not in the center of it. You're not on the edge of it looking in. There's simply a totality of appearances. That doesn't solve the hard problem, and it doesn't make consciousness an illusion, anything but. It, It leaves consciousness being the only thing you're still certain of. But it definitely puts the lie to this sense that there's a subject in the head who can appropriate experience in each moment. Well, let's go with that a little bit. So I am, as you know, a, a chronically failed meditator. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, I'd say, I'm going to get back into this. So I pick up a book. Uh, I think Waking Up, your wake, book, Waking Up, contains some rudimentary instructions on how to meditate. And typically they say, you know, do this, do that, comfortable clothing, lie down, sit down. And then you try to clear your mind of thoughts. What's going to happen, though, all the books say very gently, say, well, things are going to intrude. You're going to find yourself thinking about something and gently, as it were, gently push it away, gently nudge it away. And so I'm reading this and I'm saying, I I really understand what that means. That phenomenologically rings true to me. I can imagine myself doing it. I could do it. But it also feels very dualist. It also feels like there's me right. and then there's these, these pesky intrusive thoughts, which I'm going to gently bat away. Right. And the, the, sen- the intuitive sense of it fits very comfortable with my intuitive sense of self. Now, what you're saying is 
if I, if I only lasted longer than a few weeks, it would no longer be like that or a few months or a few years. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't put it in, you know, in the general case, it, it does take some training and people take some time to log enough hours under appropriate instruction so that they can actually perform this exercise. But in truth, it need not take a lot of time. And it is susceptible to to having better information. I mean, which is to say, you know, knowing what to look for and how to look for it is much better than just having a vague sense of what the project is. And it entails closing your eyes and crossing your legs and trying not to be distracted by thoughts. So the value of good information is pretty high. But yeah, even even with good information, what most people confront is just how distractible they are, how hard it is to pay attention to anything. And what you're describing, this sense of, okay, I'm supposed to be meditating. I'm, I'm going to pay attention to yeah. something, let's say the breath, and thoughts are going to come and distract me. Okay, let's go. And then you try to pay attention and you say, oh, go wait a minute, that was a thought. Okay. And it's true that that whole thing is just a concatenation of thoughts, right? You're not actually even practicing yet. I mean, you're just kind of orienting to the project. But what most people are doing when they begin meditating is just thinking with their eyes closed. Whatever yeah. they're trying to do, they're just thinking with their eyes closed. And part of it is they're thinking about thinking. They're thinking about thoughts as the enemy. I wish I could just calm my mind. Why is this so hard? All of that's thinking, right? And all of that feels like me, because me is what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. The identification with thought, that feeling, is the feeling we call I. Yeah. And so it's not until you can actually break that spell and notice what consciousness is like before attention gets trimmed down by identification with thought. It's, it's only in that space that you can notice what consciousness on its own feels like noticing anything that it, it might notice. And I'll tell you something ironic, which is that when I go through those exercises, what it leaves me is in some way more conscious of myself as I'm yeah. seeing it than I ever would in any normal circumstances. It's my, my, the, my stream of thought, my agency, my volition is, is annoyingly loud. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, this, this internal monologue of, you know, there, there I am, I guess both speaking and listening to me, to myself, which is strange, but I'm doing that. And then compare to opposite practice. So sometimes when I want to go to sleep, I'll put on a podcast, not a, not a podcast like yours, but I, you know, an audio book or a podcast yeah. and I'll fall into somebody telling a story. And at those moments, maybe the moments right before I fall asleep, that's where I relinquish myself. There's no longer me in there. There's just abs being absorbed in a story. And my agency and my, my meta talk is all gone. Well, that must happen when you're, when you're really engrossed in a film yes. or television or really anything, right? I mean, you're just... That's right. It's, it's what it is to lose yourself in your work. I mean, that's why we have that phrase. Paying sufficient attention to something is synonymous with, at least for brief periods, losing the sense of looking over your own shoulder while doing it. That's right. And so, so there's a paradox here. So, I mean, another example of what you're talking about is uh, Mikali Csikszentmihalyi's concept of flow and the idea, again, of loss of self. 
Yeah. So, so the paradox is that the exercise of meditation is trying to get you to acknowledge or experience the, the non-self, but it does so by putting you in a situation where yourself is abnormally salient. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just a temporary impediment for more or less everyone. Was, was temporary for you, maybe. Yeah, but no, but like temporary could be, it could take a long time to get over. And there are degrees of getting past it. I mean, you can get to the benefits of some of the benefits of meditation even before getting fully past that apparent roadblock. You can notice the difference between being being able to pay attention to the breath, say, or being just relentlessly distracted. And in the beginning, you know, mindfulness is really just that, you know, noticing you're distracted and coming back to some object of meditation, whether it's the breath or, the, or a sound mm -hmm. or anything. And in that alternation between being carried away and then coming back and being carried away and coming back, you're building a kind of muscle and you're training the ordinary hardware of attention in a way that does bring certain benefits. There's a a massive you know, relaxation response available to you in just being able to be more concentrated than you're tending to be on an arbitrary object like the breath. And yet it can still feel like you are meditating. You know, you, the self, is now successfully paying attention to the breath, which is to say you're not cutting through the illusion of the self in those moments of, of successfully paying attention, but you're getting some benefit. And the truth is, most of the advertised benefits of meditation, you know, mitigating stress and, and being able to unplug from painful rumination and perseveration that more or less all psychological suffering is born of, that comes even before you can fully cut through this illusion of the self. But, you know, I would agree that flow states and immersion in, in anything, you know, in listening to a story or watching a film, that does give an indication of this property of mind to be kind of unified with the object of attention. But the difference between you know what's generally called mindfulness and flow is that with flow, the truth of selflessness, the intrinsic selflessness of consciousness, is not really being recognized. It's like there's not enough metacognition happening in flow. And it, what's happening in flow is you're tending to mistake the circumstance as the reason why you're becoming unified with your experience, why the experiencer is kind of collapsing into the experience because the experience is so good, right? You just love to play tennis, and this is why, because for about five seconds there, you know, there was no you and the ball and the racket and the court. There was just one, you know, swing that was, you know, truly yeah. unified athletic movement, and it was so pleasurable. Right, so God, I got to figure out how to play more tennis, and you're not recognizing that this is a property of consciousness itself that's available in in just ordinary moments of drinking a glass of water, right? And, you know, it's, a, it's an attribution error of a kind, and that's why you can't learn meditation from just playing tennis or doing anything else that that is giving you a flow experience. Whereas you could, once you know how to meditate, you, well, then you can take that into tennis or anything else. So it's not a two way street there, unfortunately. Whenever I talk to you, whenever we have these conversations, mm -hmm. it always motivates me to get back into meditation and, 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 experience, and experience all this.
All right. Well, there's an app for that. I'll give you a... <laughs> is, is there? I'll, I'll hook you up with a subscription. Oh, thank you. It's very <laughs> kind of you. So it would probably be too much of a transition to go to another Twitter person who says we should discuss Tiger King. Maybe we should save that for next time. We should table that. But um, table that. Now I have two dates, unfortunately, to talk about Tiger King because Caitlin Flanagan is waiting to talk about Tiger King as well. It's 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 very oh. rich. Also, after that beautiful explication of consciousness, talking about Tiger King is just not right. It's going to bring us down. Well, Paul, um, as always, great to talk to you, and uh, I'm I'm pretty sure our next conversation will be under impressively similar quarantine conditions. So. Yeah. Try to have an uneventful life between now and then. Same for you. Stay safe. <laughs>